I don't sing as good as everybody. Okay. All right, I think we got most everybody in. It is a great day to be together this morning. Thank you for coming to church today. My name is Joe Collins, and I am honored to be here with you uh, for the next few minutes. We've got a, a message that I'd like to put before you from God's Word. Uh, we are in a series, or I am in a series. It's one I've been doing since the beginning of the year called Hashtag Jesus. And the idea is that we're going to follow Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. But before I get started, I just wanted to notice what a beautiful place we're, we have here in this, this amazing backdrop. We are at a country club. There is a golf course behind me. And, and for those of you that may not know much about golf, let me give you a little explanation. On, on each hole, there's 18 holes in golf, and the goal is to get the ball into the hole in the shortest amount of strokes, right? Shortest amount of hits. And, and if you didn't know this, on each hole, there's actually several places that you could start from. They call them tee boxes. The, the hardest tee boxes are the ones that are farthest from the hole. Those are the black tee boxes. Sometimes they call them the tips. And that's where the pros play golf from. I don't play golf from the black tee boxes. About 10, 15 yards in front of the black tee boxes are the blues. That's where your average golfer who's better than average would want to play from. Still very challenging, but a little closer than the blacks. And then there's the white tee boxes. That's where probably most golfers should play from. I will admit, in my ego, I play from the blues, but I probably should play from the whites. It's another 15, 20 yards closer to the hole, makes it a lot easier. And then in front of those are what the gold tee boxes, or sometimes called the ladies' tee. And that's because women don't typically hit the ball as far as men. In fact, it's a big embarrassment if, if a man tees off from the, the black or the blue or the white and doesn't hit it past the gold. That's a bit of an embarrassment for a guy. So one day there was a golfer and he was out golfing. And he was at the first tee. And another funny thing about golf is that golfers need to, to get into their rhythm. They, they have what they call their, uh, their setup, right? And so... Generally, every golfer has a different setup, but it's something where they take a couple practice swings, they stand behind the ball, they visualize the shot, they clear their minds, they relax their body, they come up and then they address the ball and they get ready to make their shot. And this is why in golf, it's always very quiet at the tee box or when someone's addressing the ball because, because you got to let the guy go through or the lady go through her pre-shot routine. It's very important because in golf, routine is how you win. You want to repeat the swing every single time, the same successful swing every single time. And so on TV, you'll see sometimes golfers get angry if a photographer takes a picture in the middle of their swing or something like that. It really upsets them. So there was this man, and he was on the first tee, and he was going through his pre-shot routine, and he was getting ready to address the ball, and he lined up, and he was all ready, and all of a sudden, over a loudspeaker at the golf course, he hears the starter. Now, the starter is the guy who's in the clubhouse, and he usually has a big window, and he looks out over the first tee, and he's the guy that arranges everybody in order so that you don't get crowds on the golf course. So he creates two sums or three sums or four sums, and he sends you out every 10 minutes or so, and that way, you don't back up on the golf course. And all of a sudden, in the middle of his pre-shot routine, the, 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 the guy in the clubhouse blurts out, Will the gentleman on the ladies' tee please back up and play from the men's tee? So the guy's rattled. He's out of his routine, so he backs up, and he, he starts all over, gets back into his routine, lines back up, gets ready to address the ball, nice and quiet. He's ready to hit. And again, the starter blurts out over the loudspeaker, would the gentleman on the ladies' tee please back up and play from the men's tee? Again, rattles him, shakes his concentration. He's annoyed and frustrated. He keeps getting interrupted. He starts all over, sets up his whole uh, pre-shot routine, addresses the ball, gets all comfortable. He's ready. And again, the starter blurts out, Sir, on the women's tee, please back up and play from the ladies' tee. And finally, the golfer is so mad, he turns around and he yells at the starter. Will the starter in the clubhouse please be quiet while I play my second shot? You get that, Gio? He didn't hit it far enough. He hit it just to the ladies' tee. This was his second shot. You know, inter I've done that too. Interruptions 
never go well. Like, it, they're just annoying, aren't they? When people interrupt us, we're in the zone, we're trying to set ourselves up straight, get ourselves ready, and then somebody comes across and interrupts our routine or our life or whatever it is we're doing, and we tend to get frustrated when people interrupt us. But, you know, sometimes interruptions are actually the working of God. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21, and before we do, we're going we're to pray. Heavenly Father, it is great to be together. We are thankful for this time, and we do pray for your spirit to be with us. Speak through us, to us, through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 21, I'm, I apologize for the screen. I know it's way over there, and it's, you know, we're trying to do our best here. We're getting better at it with our, with our equipment. But over here on the screen, I have the scriptures that we're going to read, and I have a little map that I want to draw your attention to. Because in, in, the, in our series of following Jesus, it's important that we know where he is and what's going on when he is. So we'll pick it up here in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now, Mark picks up this story kind of in the middle of another story. And so if you can give me maybe 90 seconds, I'm going to try to give you the other story that was going on just before this. Jesus had started his ministry up in the, the province of Galilee, up there on the top part of the, of the map. He primarily centered himself in Capernaum. That was kind of his adopted home city. And for the first year, year and a half of his ministry, that's where he spent, actually first two-thirds, probably, probably two and a half years, he spent up there in Galilee. And he would travel his home base in Capernaum, and he would go out throughout the region, and he would teach, and he would preach, and he would perform miracles. And over that period of time, in that, in that first year, year and a half, he became quite popular. His notoriety spread all through Galilee, even down, even all the way down near Jerusalem in the province of Judea. He was becoming well, well known, and he was wildly popular among the people. He was a real populist at that time, teaching and preaching, and people loved it, and he would heal, and he would minister to people, and crowds would follow him. And this this first year, year and a half, was just a, a very intense time where it was on the go all the time, burning the candles at both ends. Along the way, he recruited some disciples to be his students to follow him. And they would travel together, and he would teach, and amazing things would happen. And then one day, he was out in Capernaum, and he was actually down by the sea. That little uh, lake there, the Sea of Galilee, is actually a lake. It's also called Lake Gisenaret, or the Sea of Tiberias. But, but that little sea was a very important place uh, for the people of Galilee because that's where all the fishing and the, the commerce and the main roads would go through there. It was a hub of, 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 of uh, busyness and important to the, to the region, especially the city of Capernaum. And so one day he was down by the sea and this massive crowd came to talk to him and he had to get in a boat. He got in one of his disciples' boat and he had to push off just a little bit so he could have a podium where he could preach to the crowd. And he spent the whole day preaching. And you can imagine during this time, it must have been exhausting. It must have been tiring. He was on the go for months and months and months. And here he is, this massive day where he goes through all these lessons. And then in the evening, he says to his disciples, let's get out of here. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, he did this in the evening because that was the best way to escape the crowds. He left sort of all at once, abruptly. He didn't go back to shore to get any supplies. He just said, let's go. He dropped the mic, said, we're out of here. <laughs> After this long day of teaching. And it was evening, so crowds typically didn't follow too much. They didn't try to run around the sea. They didn't try to get in boats and follow. A few did, but for the most part, they didn't. And he was probably, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but he was probably going to the other side, the eastern side, the side that says Sea of Galilee on the map, to get away, to take a break. Along the way, a storm happened on the Sea of Galilee. And these storms could be dangerous. They were deadly. And the ship was about to sink, the, the boat that they were in. And the disciples wake him up, and they're like, we're going to die. And he gets up, and he says, be quiet, be still. And we're not sure if he was yelling at the wind and the waves or the disciples, probably both. But immediately the wind and the waves still, quiet. Everything calms down, and now the disciples are terrified. Who is this guy, they keep thinking. I mean, they had seen him do some amazing things, but now he tells the wind and the waves, and it immediately stops, and they're, they're terrified. So they get across the lake, 
and they land somewhere on the eastern shore, probably right around where the word of is, right about the middle of the eastern shore. Today, that's known as the Golan Heights. It used to be part of Syria. It's part of Israel today. And there, they get off the boat, and they happen to have landed, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, in a, in a port that they didn't intend to go to. Because the port they landed in uh, was most probably a place called Kersey today. That's what it's called. And it just so happened that that port had been closed in Jesus' day. And it was closed because there were two demon-possessed people that lived in the cemetery right next to the port. And these guys were like the Incredible Hulk. No one could subdue them. No one could hold them down. They were nuts. And these two guys, in their, in their sin, in their possession, their demon possession, in the craziness, they literally scared all traffic away from that port. So people didn't go there. I think the disciples were so scared about the storm and then so scared about Jesus, you know, calming the storm that they landed there by accident in the middle of the night. They get off the boat and these two possessed guys come charging at them. They fall on their feet. Jesus talks to him, and then he casts the demons out, and those demons go into a herd of pigs. You may have heard this story. A, pig, a herd of pigs, about 2,000, and those pigs rush down the hillside and drown themselves in the Sea of Galilee. My son and I have a joke because we figured it would, must have taken at least a half an hour for those pigs to drown themselves at minimum, 2,000 pigs. And I wonder, what were they doing for that entire time? One after, really? This, what's happening here, right? And so it created such a commotion that the town came out to see what happened. And there they see all these pigs floating in the lake. And then they see these two former demoniacs healed and in their right mind. And they get freaked out. They get scared. And so they kick Jesus out. Go away. You can't stay here. Go away. So he doesn't get any rest. And they have to get back in the boat in the middle of the night and have to go back across the Sea of Galilee to here, Capernaum. That's probably where they headed back to. So when Mark says he had again crossed over to the other side of the lake, he was saying he went from the east side back to the west side. So I imagine in Mark's story, in his chronology, that they probably arrived back where they had just left from the next day. Some break. They get off the boat, and there's a crowd there again. They're still there. It's like everybody went to bed, woke up, and went right back to the sea. Where'd he go? And, oh, there he is. He comes back in. Gets off the boat, and they start crowding around him. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people all around him, pressing and pushing on all sides. And then this guy named Jarius comes up. Now, Jarius was an important guy. He was the ruler of the synagogue. These guys were, were important in the community. They were in charge of the administration of the synagogue's property. They were responsible for security. They were responsible for the setup. They were responsible for all the details that went into the administration of the synagogue. And they were responsible for securing the speakers at the synagogue. They would have oftentimes different teachers who were traveling around and they would invite them in to come and speak in their synagogue. So Jarius was a man of significant influence. You know what's funny is it doesn't say what synagogue specifically Jarius was the ruler of. But it's quite possible that he was the ruler in Capernaum. And if that's true, that meant that he invited Jesus to speak just months before in Jesus' first official speaking engagement. That's a whole other sermon where Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, his first big public sermon right there. And, and the audience is described, his message is described as if it was punching the audience in the face. Literally, they were like, what is this, you know, what is he saying? And, the, and, and, and he taught with such power and authority. And then another demoniac, demoniac comes rushing and screaming and ranting, and Jesus casts the demon out of him, and then the crowd's terrified, and they run out of the synagogue. Jarius may have been the guy that booked that speaker that day. If not, he was a, a ruler of some synagogue in the area, and he probably saw, or at the very least had heard, of Jesus' ability. And so no wonder he comes running to him in a, in a time of need, in a time of crisis. He goes to Jesus, he falls at his feet, and he pleads with him, my daughter is dying. A sentence that none of us ever want to have to say. 
You know, the interesting thing about Jairus is as a synagogue ruler, he may or may not have been friendly with Jesus. Sure, he may have invited him in at one point, but eventually the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities turned their backs on Jesus. They rejected him. And by this point, they were actually publicly accusing him of being Satan. So Jairus may or may not have been a friend to Jesus. But desperate times call for desperate measures. When, when you're up against it, when, when everything comes flying apart, when the world co- is coming, crashing down around you, you look for help. People have wondered, why does God allow bad things to happen? As if God is somehow evil or wrong, as if it's somehow his fault. But I put before you, you know, if we didn't have any trouble in this life, we would never look for help. If we didn't feel desperate, there would be no hope for us to turn to something greater than ourselves, someone bigger and better than ourselves. This isn't in my notes, but I have to share it. I see my friend John Spencer in the crowd, and John has one of my favorite stories of all time when he was in the Army. John, can I tell this story? Thank you. He was in the Army, and uh, they were doing training. It was training exercises. Sorry, I should have asked you before. Please forgive me. Um, but they were doing some training exercises in the army, and uh, uh, they were out in the desert. And you know, you get into your foxhole, and you got your your fighting partner there, and you dig your foxhole, and the two of you have to kind of fight. you fight for each other, you protect each other. And so John, <laughs> he's in the foxhole. They're all geared up, and and you know, you have to take watches. Like every couple hours, you have to switch. One guy sleeps, the other guy's awake. And the guy, <laughs> I love this story. The guy says to John hey, I had a really rough night last night, man. Can, can you take the first watch? And John's like, yeah, okay, no problem. He didn't know the guy. And the guy immediately starts completely undressing. And John's thinking to himself, this is supposed to be a war simulation. What are you doing? He's like getting totally undressed and then gets in his sleeping bag all nice and comfortable and goes to sleep. And John's thinking, that's, that's not, I'm in trouble. So then he wakes the guy up, and when it's his turn, the guy's all groggy, and John goes to sleep. And the next thing you know, he can barely see because he doesn't trust this guy. Sure enough, he, he wakes up in the morning, and the guy's sound asleep, and they're both sound asleep. I, asked, I told John, I said, did you wake up, and everybody was speaking Arabic around you? Is that what happened? Just all of a sudden, you got overrun? <laughs> but you know, when, when desperate times happen, they call for desperate measures. When you're in trouble, you got to look for help, and you got to go to someone that you can rely on, someone you can count on. And for this guy, he had heard and maybe even seen what Jesus was capable of, and so that's where he went. He went to Jesus, pleading for the life of his daughter. And he may or may not have been a friend. He may have been a foe of Jesus at this point. But the Bible says that Jesus went with him. Jesus didn't say, I'm not going with you. You're getting what you deserve. No, Jesus treated him better than he deserved. If there's one thing you're going to take away from the lesson today, please take this away. There is a better way to treat people. As Christians, we're called to a higher standard. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Do unto you, not as, as, as they have done to you, but as you would have them do to you. But it's so easy for us to want to treat people in kind, to retaliate or to push back or to, or to vent our frustrations. And you get what you deserve, but that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't treat him as he deserved. He treated him not as he deserved. He treated him better than he deserved. Because there's a better way to treat people. You know, we're going through changes here, seeming shoreline churches coming together. We got lots of talks happening. It's been going on. It's going really well, by the way, if you don't know. The update is things are going awesome. But I know in the process, there are feelings that come out. And there can be a tendency to start lashing out at people around us. Old feelings, old attitudes, whatever. And please remember the words of Jesus. I mean, remember the action of Jesus. Don't treat people as they deserve. Treat them better than they deserve. Especially your church family. Especially your own family. The people around you. 
verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, came to her, fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. So Jesus is in a, in a crowd, and there's this chaos. They're, they're pressing against him. Jairus has just shown up. They're in a hurry now. Time is of the essence. we got to get to Jairus' house. His daughter's in, in grave condition. Let's get him there. And he's trying to make his way through the crowd. He's pushing. He's pressing. You can almost picture the disciples and, and people just trying to, trying to get through that crowd to get over to Jairus' place. And they're, the, the, the crowd is just pressing against him. And then in this crowd is a woman, an unknown woman, an unnamed woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She's had some sort of hemorrhage for 12 years. And it says that she suffered a great deal, not only because of the, the hemorrhage, but because of the doctors. You thought our health care is bad. I did a little research into kind of the health care situation in, in, you know, in ancient days. And, you know, they, they, they did all kinds of crazy things. There, there, there's records of people drinking potions made of mouse heads and owl brains and crab eyes. I mean, how do you even get the crab eye? I they would carry amulets around and say magic charms and phrases. I mean, this was the extent. Sometimes those treatments were worse than the illness. And this lady had suffered a tremendous deal. You know, guys, human knowledge is extremely limited. We're better now than we were then, thank God. But we're still hooting in the dark. We're still groping around. And if you are trying to put your hope or your faith or your trust in your ability or some other person's ability, you're, you're walking on a knife edge. Because human wisdom is so, so limited. But not only was she suffering under the doctor, she was also completely broke by this point. And she was unclean under Jewish law, which meant that she was an outcast from her community. She was separated from her own family and her own social circle. She had suffered a great deal. But then it says when she had heard about Jesus, desperate times, right? When she heard about Jesus, she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I can be healed. You know, she had what we call a mustard seed of faith. Just a tiny bit. And let me tell you, it was probably not even very good at that. It was probably mixed up with superstition and myth. She was probably thinking, you know, maybe he's some sort of crystal, and if I touch him, I'll get better. I mean, who knows what was going on in her mind. But she had just enough, as messed up as it was, and as convoluted as it was, there was just enough, a teensy-weensy bit of faith in her. No, maybe she was there the day before. Remember, Jesus was just there the day before. And when he was teaching from the boat, do you know what he was teaching? He was teaching parables. You know what his last parable was? The parable of the mustard seed. Maybe she had heard that message. Maybe she had that in her mind. Oh, he's back. This is my chance. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to put some faith in him. Oh, how much better would our lives be if when we hear a message, we would do it. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm with you. There's so many good messages I hear, and I go, how great is that? And the next day, I'm not any different, and I want to be different. Boy, if we could just take even a word from something Jesus says, we would be so much better off. And so she did. She heard a word. So she had faith, a tiny bit of faith. And so she touched him, and guess what? She was healed. She was healed. Twelve years of suffering ended in a moment. You know, a lot can be done 
with just a little faith. We have a little faith. We have a little kernel of faith right now, right before us. The faith that if we come together as a family of churches, we will be better. And, and that will set us up to one day eventually spread. And to, and to take this, this beautiful thing we have and bring it to other communities and, and hopefully continue to do that. But it's got to take a step. We've got to be willing to do it. We've got to be willing to try. We've got to be willing to take just that little leap of faith. Even a little bit goes a long way. Maybe in your life there's other things you're struggling with. Who knows? You've got a big decision ahead of you. A real hardship has come up in your life. And, and, and the challenge is to do what Jesus would do in the situation. And it's scary and it's fearful. But if you just take that little tiny bit of faith, you have no idea how big that mustard seed can grow. You have no idea how much good can come out of that one act. A lot can be done with a little faith. So instantly she was healed. And the Bible says that Jesus realized power had gone out from him. My son and I like talking about this. Like, what was that like? Like, Jesus realized power had left him. I mean, interesting. I don't know how that works, but I know he knew that something had happened. Not something. He knew exactly what had happened. He knew she had been healed. He knew who she was and what her problem was. Instantly, he knew. Before he was even there, he knew. He's God. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And even though he was in veiled form in the, in the body of Jesus Christ as a human, he was still God. You want to know something? Human knowledge is limited, but God's knowledge is unlimited. So instead of turning to the finite human wisdom that we have today, that we seem to be swimming in, in our culture, that's telling us how we ought to be and what should be and what are our values and our morals and how the world should look and how we should behave. Instead of going to there, we probably would be better off if we went to God instead. Because his knowledge is by far greater than our knowledge, no matter what, no matter how much time we have on this earth, no matter how many billions of people have lived, you can add it all up. We can add it all up and it's still finite. It's still infinitesimal compared to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So Jesus knew what had happened and he turned around and he started looking for her. Who here are fans of The Rock? You know The Rock, I don't know his real name, Dwayne something. Dwayne Johnson. You know, he had that. Can I do it? Can't do it. Can anybody do that? You know, the eyebrow thing? He had that look. I'm a little older than the rock generation, so I was a fan of Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood had an awesome look. The, the glare. He just stared at you. He had a look. The word here for Jesus looking at the crowd is this word parabobleto. It's a Greek term. And, it, and it's the same word that was used when Jesus was in the synagogue and, and, the, and, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had brought him a man who, was, who had a shriveled hand and they were daring him to heal him because they wanted to catch him sinning by healing this guy. And the Bible says Jesus, parable though, he stared at them. This wasn't just a look. This was a glare. This was intensity. I mean, this is fire coming out of his eyeball. This is how he looked around that crowd. He was... It wasn't like, who did it? It was like, where is she? Where is she? This intense look. Eventually, they made eye contact. And she instantly was filled with fear. And so she fell before him in fear. She first came to him in faith. But now, she's afraid. Isn't that so true? Has anybody been here a Christian longer than three days? Isn't it awesome? You know, you go to God, I'm so full of faith. And then like within an hour, you're scared to death because the next week something completely unexpected happens. So she falls down. She tells him the whole story. And Jesus, instead of rushing to Jairus' house, instead of pushing through and not worrying about what had happened, he knew, you know, no big deal. Let me get to Jairus. This is more important. Instead of continuing his task at hand, he allowed himself to stop and be interrupted. Not like our golfer, but be interrupted. Not annoyed, but realize something important is happening here. And so he stops the whole train. And he turns around. He finds this woman. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why did he stop? Why acknowledge this woman? Why do this? It was completely unnecessary. 
in the story. He was on his way to Jairus's time was of the essence. Why? I have two things that I think he was doing. This is my opinion. Number one, he wanted her to know that he knew. You know what that's called? That's called maturing her faith. You ever remember as a kid, maybe you can think back to being a kid, and your parents said, don't touch the stove, it's hot. And like Henry, we all have to touch the stove. Every one of us. And then we touch the stove and it burns and our parents are smiling at us. I told you so. There's an element of maturing that happens there. In that moment, you realize as a kid, oh, they, they're not as dumb as I thought they were. <laughs> now that leaves at 15. <laughs> and hopefully it comes back sometime after 19. But somewhere in there it goes out the window and parents are dumb. But there's a time where we kind of come back and we realize, oh, they know more than we think. And I think that's kind of what was happening here. Jesus was helping this woman's faith mature. He was helping her grow up a little bit. Hey, I don't know what you thought about me originally. Maybe, maybe you thought uh, I had uh, champagne. Maybe you thought, we should all wave at him. Maybe you thought, you know, that I was some sort of crystal or magic soothsayer. But I want you to know that's not what's happening here. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. I know exactly what had just happened here. I just wanted you to know that I knew. What a great way to grow our faith. You think about your Christian life. And, and at different times in your life, you've been faithful, but then you've been challenged and you've taken another little tiny step of faith. And then guess what happens? You go, oh, I have even more faith now. And there's something that works in us, that if we act in faith, then we get a little more faithful. And if we act in faith, we get a little more faithful, right? And it's kind of one foot in front of the other. But you know, the opposite is true too. If we stop acting in faith, if we start going backwards, we start losing our faith. Jesus wanted her to know he knew because he wanted her to grow in her faith. The second reason I believe that Jesus stopped and allowed himself to be interrupted and embraced this situation because he wanted everyone else to know what had happened, including you and I. Think about the scene for a minute. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of people. They're crowding around Jesus, bumping into him, rubbing against him, pushing, shoving, trying to see him. One in the crowd has faith enough to touch him and be healed. Many follow, but few have faith. It's so amazing. We could be caught up in the church and we could be going, doing all the church stuff we're supposed to do and actually not be faithful. Is it faithful anymore to show up on a Sunday morning for anyone that's been around? Is that really an act of faith? I mean, I guess it is, but is it commiserate with your maturity level? Are you living on mustard seed? When you should be doing something so much greater, something so much beyond yourself by now? Should we not be so much further ahead of ourselves than we really are? And God, Jesus is just standing there waiting for us to catch up. You guys are going to get there. It's actually going to be great. Come on. Okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. Come on. Okay. Yeah, see, it worked. Now let's take the next step. Come on. Okay, I'll wait. Come on. Okay, let's take another step. All right, see, now you can do Oh, okay, I'll wait. All right, come on. I'm so inspired by the high school champions. I, I can't stop talking about the high school champions. We have an awesome high school ministry. You guys don't know it yet, but it's awesome. We had a, a, a together time. You know, we had put the call out. Simi had already done this, but you and Shoreline had put the call out for the past couple months. We need some high school champs. We want people who are sold out, who will make this their full-time ministry. They're going to pour their heart and soul into it. We don't care if you're a, a single, a campus person, a, 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 a whatever, or if you're married and, and one of your kids is in the group. In fact, all the better. We want those people. 
because you're invested. Your kids are in this group. We want you in the group. Just like if you have junior high kids, I want you to champion in the junior high because there's no more invested person than a parent of a junior high or in the, high, in the junior high ministry. And the same with the high school ministry, right? I'm so fired up. We had our first get-together with the champions from CME, the champions from Shoreline. And we had an incredible time together. We met at the Cochran's home. Thank you. We, had a, we celebrated Peter Wade's birthday. He's 25. And he's got a teenager. I don't, I, you know, but anyway, so he was there. And we just talked. And, and you know, it was so cool because we, at the end we said, what? what do we want this ministry to be? Now, my, everybody got to chime in. I said, I want it to be magical. I want these kids to go, that was the greatest time I could have ever had at that time in my life. And so we got big plans. They got some big ideas. Go, go away. Go out of town. Go do crazy things. We want the kids to do crazy things. But someone at the end said something that really touched my heart. They said, I want it to be a refuge. You know, the kids have come back from camp, and I don't know if you've talked to your kids since then, but do you know the amount of attack our high school kids are under? On a daily basis, they are being inundated. They are being swamped by what's going on in the world around them. Thank God we got champions that want to make it a refuge a place of safety, a place of security, a place where they can come and be themselves and not have to feel the intense pressure of worldliness all around them all of the time. These are your champions. That's what they want to do for the kids in the high school ministry. That's who they want it to be. And they don't want it to just be in Simi and, and one in Shoreline. They want it to be one big group across both churches. We want one, we came up with the word 805 ministry because we like beer. <laughs> but we want those kids to feel that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And, you know, and we, have a, we have a geographic issue. We got people down in Oxnard, Cam Ventura, they're down the grade. It's a bit of a drive. There's people up above the grade. And we got to figure all that stuff out. But we are committed. Those high school champions are 110% committed to your kids to pull them together. We counted it up. We have about 29 kids. About 20 up, 10 down. Imagine if we never reached out and pulled those 10 in. What would they have? Just nine other friends they don't get along with? I mean, at least in 30, you can find someone. <laughs> Some of you don't like the family group you're in, right? I mean, don't do that to your kids. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Come with me. It's just a joke. But that's what they want. That's what we want to give them. I'm going to ask, uh, I don't know if they're all here, but let's let the high school champions, why don't you stand up so we can give you a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. And guys, they're giving their heart. They're going to help carpool. They're going to help figure it out. It's not on you. They're going to come up alongside. They're not responsible, but they're going to come alongside. They're going to make it helpful. And they're going to pull those kids in, and they're going to do an amazing, amazing job. Please give your heart to them. But at every level, we have junior high champs. Did you know that? We still need a couple more. We're working on it. If you're interested, this is an announcement. Please give me or Geo a call. We're looking for more junior high champs. Same thing. If you have a kid and you want to be a part of it, great. If you don't, but you have a real passion for it, great. Sign up. Jump in. Because they need it too. What do they say? Uh, uh, you know, the, the, when they make a movie, they target 18 to like 55, 40. What is it? Jeremy told me this, 18 to like 40-something. Whatever, that's like the target, right? I'm officially out of the target, so I hate every movie that's made now. <laughs> this is what the world's doing. It's targeting that age group. And truth be told, they're really going after those 18 to 25-year-olds and even the preteens. 
That's who they're really trying to market to. And they're just spewing their, 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 their theology. They're spewing their philosophy. They're spewing that worldly point of view right at them. It's targeting them. God forbid we don't create champions. God forbid we don't put a group together that can be a refuge for these kids. How dare us? So please, give your heart 110%. But this is happening with the campus, with the singles, and hopefully with the marrieds. We're trying to pull together because we're better together. Jesus wants us to mature our faith, and he wants us to be the few that follow. I mean, the few that have faith, not just follow. So verse 34, he says to the lady, uh, daughter, very, very kind term of endearment, inviting her back into the community. Your faith has healed you. If you're new here or if you've been here 100 years, I don't really care. I want you to know that our motto, uh, one of our goals, one of the things we want to be as a church is we don't want to be like the crowd that just follow. We want to be like the few that have faith. Will you join? Will you come out of the crowd and just reach with the little faith you have and touch and join? Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, once you do it, you're going to go, okay, I did it. And then Jesus is going to take another step and go, okay, come on, do it again. Come on, do it again. He's going to keep doing that. I know. So keep going. Keep having faith. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but they laughed at him, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately she stood up, began to walk around. She was 12 years old. That's what they do. They walk around. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So in the midst of this interruption, Jesus has stopped. He has this interaction with this woman. It's not an annoyance to him. He's happy being interrupted. He's got something to teach, something to tell the crowd and to tell us. But then the news comes that causes Jairus' world to come crashing down. Your daughter is dead. And you can almost see Jairus uh, empty, gone. What do I do now? What if we didn't get interrupted? What if we didn't have to stop? What if he didn't have to spend this that past few minutes talking to this, this lady? He could have dealt with her letter. Why didn't he just come? Why do you have to wait? Why be interrupted? Everything in him was, was just come to a screeching halt. And Jesus, being Jesus, looks right at him and says, Don't be afraid. Just Believe. It's amazing how many bad decisions I've made because I was afraid. Afraid of failure, afraid of being left out, afraid of being embarrassed, afraid of running out of time, afraid that I might miss something, afraid that I can't afford it. You know, I'm just afraid. Afraid of things. And I'm not even dealing with the death of someone in my family. I'm just afraid of things. There's a, there's a line in, a, in a, a, an old slave hymn back in the 19th century. And it goes like this. God may not come when you call him, but he'll be there on time. Sometimes we feel like God is not there when we need him. Sometimes we feel like these interruptions and these things that have stopped us in our tracks and these problems that have come up are just not part of God's plan. This is not how it should have played out. And so we get scared. We get afraid. 
and we stop believing. And Jesus says, just believe. It's happening exactly as it should happen. That's the gift we have in Christ that others not in Christ don't have. We have a gift. That gift is that we can trust in God's timing and in God's way and in God's will when the world is just floundering. We've got to overcome fear with faith. Now I'm going to tell you the oldest line in preaching. Ready? Read your Bible. You want to have faith? Read your Bible. It's God's word. It's God's word that changes the heart. It's not your best friend's advice. It's God's word that changes the heart. It's not what you read in the horoscope in the newspaper. Please don't do that. It's God's word that changes the heart. It's not our best input to our kids or, or, or the input we try to give people. It's, it's, it's God's word that changes the heart. It's not the latest stump speech or, or, or a, a hot topic out there or self-help book. It's God's word that overcomes fear. It's God's word that gives faith in our times of fear. So he goes on, verse 37, he said, he did not let anyone follow. So finally, somehow Jesus gets out of the crowd. Somehow he made his way. He finally got the crowd behind him. Only a few of the disciples were with him and Jairus. And I can almost picture Jairus at this point, just, you know, the, the walking dead. I mean, he just got the worst news ever. He doesn't know which way is up. And I can just picture Jesus grab him and just drag him through the crowd. Okay, we got to go. Let's get you where we need you to get to. So they leave the crowd behind. They eventually make it to Jairus' house, and all the mourners are there. And you got to love Jesus. I, I, I don't know if he's being funny, but he walks in. He's like, hey, shh, she's sleeping. They're there mourning and wailing and banging on a drum and crying out and la, 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 and all that kind of stuff. He's, shh, she's asleep. And they're like, you're crazy. So he just grabs the mom, Jarius, goes right into the room, right up to the little girl. And in Aramaic, he says, Talitha kum, which means arise, little girl, get up. Thank God Mark translated that because you and I, if he didn't, we would think that was some sort of magic spell. And we'd walk around saying Talitha kum to everything that happened in our life. But Jesus, Mark translates it for us. And it just means like a mom waking up a little girl in the morning. Come on, wake up, honey. Little girl, get up like a mom. And the little girl gets up. You know, sometimes interruptions, that's our theme kind of for the sermon, can cause us to stop. It's, it's okay to be interrupted. It's even okay to deal with the interruption when it happens. But let me tell you something. It's not okay to stop. Jesus didn't leave Jairus there in the crowd and just walk away. He, I think, I picture it, he took him by the arm or whatever, but they yanked him through that crowd and they walked him home. And, and there's times I think some of us in our Christian life, and I've been there for many different times, but we get stuck in bad habits or bad routines or bad ways of thinking or whatever the case may be because some crisis happened and we got to get past it. You can't just stay there. You gotta keep moving. You gotta keep going forward. And sometimes all you got to hold on to is just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. So they go in, Jesus raises her to life, and the Bible says they were completely astonished. Isn't that the way Jesus is when he finally comes up on time? And the situation all clears itself up, and you look back with 2020 hindsight, and you go, that was flat awesome. Now, during the time, you cried like a little girl, and you screamed and yelled and ran around like your hair is on fire. But afterwards, you went, man, God's awesome. Every time. Jesus is amazing every time. You know, when a golfer plays from the tip, and he hits it past the lady tee, when I do that anyways, and I feel really good about myself, 
it's not really that amazing, to be honest with you. It's like hitting at 50 yards. I mean, I should be able to hit at 300. I'm happy if I get it 50 straight. That's really not that amazing, but Jesus' miracles are always amazing. Whether it's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years or a 12-year-old girl who dies, Jesus is amazing. He never leaves people in the same condition. Isn't that a great thing? Think about your life, those of you that are disciples, those of you that have come to Jesus and made your commitment and become a disciple of Christ, been baptized. You think about the life you were living, and then here he shows up, and you're not the same, are you? You are not where you would be today. My wife and I were out to dinner with a friend, not a, not a Christian, uh, you know, not, not a member of the church, not a faithful guy in that way, believes in God. But we went to his home. We had a very nice time. He's extremely wealthy, very well off. All the friends there were very wealthy, very well off. Of course, I'm walking around. Hi, you know, I'm like the odd guy in the room. Everybody's like perfect and fit and wealthy and all this. And I'm like, hi, you know, that's me. But, you know, I'm so much better off. I don't have what they have, but you know what? I don't have the divorces. I don't have the heartbreak. I don't have the lostness. I don't have the sin. And some of us have gone through that. And that doesn't necessarily mean it was your fault. But no matter what you're dealing with in life, Jesus is grabbing you by the arm and he's saying, don't be afraid, just believe. Take the next step. Take the next step. Take the next step. And before you know it, you will be cleaning off from the black tees. And you'll be hitting 250-yard bombs down the fairway. Drive for show, baby. Drive for show. That's what they say in golf. Man, hit that thing out there and everybody, ooh and ah, 300 yards. So Jesus never leaves us in the same condition he found us. He always makes it better. And that's my point to you today. That's what I want to close with. That's the last thought I have. Please, let's be people who make whatever situation we find better. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So that golfer was on the tee and he was getting annoyed because he was getting interrupted, right? Jesus embraced his interruption. And he made it a home run. Really, the, the sad thing about the, the golfer is that, you know, he only hit his, bars, his ball to the ladies' feet. Jesus is up there bombing him 300 yards over his head. That's where he wants us to be. That's where I want to be. I hope that's where you want to be. And together as a church and as a church family working together, I believe we can get there. But we've got to have the faith in Jesus Christ. And we've got to be willing to make it better. So we'll close out now. Let's stand on up. Thank you, and God bless.